1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it not only testifies to who you are and what you have done, Lord, but how we can receive the grace that is available to us in the blood of Christ. God, we pray for not only our time here in this building, Lord, but for our brothers and sisters meeting in churches across town, Lord, that that the gospel of Jesus, the full gospel, Lord, not a false gospel, not a half gospel, Lord, the full gospel of Jesus would be proclaimed and received, that Christ would be worshiped and celebrated across this beautiful city. Lord, we pray for Pastor Nick, who's preaching at Carpentry of Valley Baptist, for that congregation and for the pastor and his wife who are on vacation. Lord, we pray that you would give them rest and that your word would be spoken in power and in grace and in truth and that everywhere the name of Jesus is mentioned, Lord, our hearts would be filled with worship and you would be exalted. We give you this time and ask that you would lead us and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. My family tries to go to Phoenix every spring uh, to watch Major League Baseball's spring training. We're big Dodger fans, and so we go to Camelback Ranch, which is their training facility there in Phoenix, and we watch a few games, and we'll go to their practices, we'll hang out, and we'll watch them practice, and there's just something so beautiful for a baseball fan about being in Phoenix in the month of March, and people from all over the country, they, they get together, and they just, it's like, it's like Disneyland for baseball fans, uh, and my family is just in, in heaven when we're there enjoying it, and one of the things my kids love to do is get autographs. And so one of the things that I have to do is prevent my children from being trampled by grown men trying to get autographs. So there's these these metal uh, fences about waist high and all of these kids crowding around the front. And then I'm there like grabbing the fence, creating this barricade for my kids as these grown men trying to reach over me and get autographs like crazed children uh, starstruck by these baseball players. And so that's my job, protect my children from getting trampled. And uh, when we first started going, it was, I was so confused by it. Why, why are these grown men? It was like Beatlemania. Like, you know, that scene when the Beatles are getting off the airplane in, in the United States and everyone's like, oh my gosh, like, it's just crazy. What is going on? And then I realized that this is their job. This is their job. They make a living in the autographed memorabilia racket. There is a lot of money to be made in autographs. 
There's actually a, a company, uh, I believe it's called PSA is the, the acronym of their, their company, that they exist to uh, verify the condition and authenticity of, of baseball cards and autographs. And they'll verify whether or not a signature is, uh, is, is an actual legitimate signature. And so people make money uh, uh, proving whether or not something is, is real and authentic or not. And they released a study not too long ago that said uh, that at least one half of every Elvis Presley or Beatles, any member of the Beatles autograph, one half of them floating around in the world are fakes. One half of the Elvis Presley or Beatles signatures out there are fake. So maybe you've got, you know, a record on your wall and signed by all four of the Beatles. Right? Get that checked out. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's not that special. Uh, because there's so many fraudulent signatures going around about them. There's a lot of forgeries out there in the sports and entertainment world. Likewise, there are a lot of forgeries in the spiritual, biblical world. The authentic gospel, as proclaimed in the Bible, is of infinite value. It has the power to transform. This is what we were talking about last week, about the perfect power of the love of God. It can do what nothing else in all of the universe can do, and it can do it in an instant. And so so the, the gospel has the power to save. It has the power to transform you into a child of God and give you an inheritance in the kingdom of God. But there are a lot of false or half gospels, inauthentic gospels out there. Many of them sound nice. They may begin with Jesus and truths about Christ, but they do not have his authentic signature on them. They've been defaced. That's a funny thing about an autograph. You take a baseball card, and if the person on that card signs that card, the Oftentimes, the value of that card will increase. But anyone else on the planet so much as puts a mark on that card, and it's worthless. It actually defaces the card. It reduces the value of that card. And so these false gospels, they began with something good, but they've been defaced by those who find the true Jesus to be a bit much. They, they want to water him down. They want to make him more palatable, make him more accessible. But just like a forged signature, false gospels are meaningless and they're powerless to save. And so our text today is about the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. John has been writing this letter to a church uh, and, and one of his primary themes is to outline authentic faith. He's been talking about the necessity of the presence of love in a authentic believer's life, the presence of righteousness in the life of a true believer. But in our text, he moves on to a different quality of authentic faith. Not just the presence of love to love one another or, or to pursue holiness in our lives, but he moves on to a different quality of authentic faith. And that is sound doctrine, sound doctrine, right theology. And we're going to get into that in a moment, but I want to remind us of some context for our passage. See, John has been writing to a church 
that has recently experienced a group of false teachers who led a portion of the truth away to abandon the truths of Jesus and wander into heresy. These false teachers did not they weren't just disagreeing about minor points of theology. They weren't just disagreeing about the way these, these theological views play out in the practice of the church. They disagreed about Jesus. They disagreed with fundamental aspects of Jesus as preached in John's gospel. And so John calls them antichrists because they are anti Jesus. They are opposed to some fundamental aspect of Jesus as taught in the authentic gospel. Now, many scholars have sought to outline what these antichrists were potentially teaching. But here's the thing. We don't have letters from these false teachers. We don't have a theological uh, uh, any theological treaties outlined by these false teachers. And so a lot of time, uh, it's, it's, it's speculation of what they actually believed and, and taught. And yet we can get insight to what they were believing and teaching by the way John responds to their argument. It's like listening to half of a telephone conversation. You can understand what that person is saying right in front of you, but you don't know what specifically they're responding to. And this is okay, This isn't a problem. We don't need to know what the false teachers were teaching because as Christians, we are not defined by or saved by what we are against, but what we are for. We are saved by what we are for. We are not anti-Christians. We're Christians, period. And so we can hear John's part of the conversation as he asserts what is true about Jesus. And because the scriptures are sufficient for understanding who God is and how to live a life that pleases him, we have everything we need in this text and do not need to build a hypothetical argument on the other side of this text because we are going to be defined by what we are for and not we are, what we are against. Amen? Amen. And so from this text specifically, we learn some necessary elements of the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. The first thing that John affirms is that the authentic gospel is a water and blood gospel. John says that Jesus is the one who came by water and blood. What in the world does that mean, John? What does it mean that Jesus came by water and blood? There are several differing opinions about how John uses these concepts, although there is significantly less debate about what the word blood refers to. So we're going to start with the blood and move our way to the water. So what does it mean that Jesus came by blood? Some scholars will say that the blood refers to the Lord's Supper. Because the wine in the communion elements represents the blood of Christ that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so some people will say that Jesus coming by the blood means that the presence of Jesus that is communicated through the elements of communion. But that would be a little bit awkward because usually 
Uh, communion, if it's referenced as a whole, is going to be either referenced by the blood and and the bread, or the, the sorry, the bread and the wine, or the body and the blood. To say the blood as as a reference to the whole of the communion elements would be a little bit awkward. And so some say that actually the majority of scholars say that the blood is referring to the actual atoning death of Jesus. And so some will say that it's referencing the communion elements. Some will say that it's representing the atonement accomplished by the blood of Christ on the cross. But I just want to point out that whether it's referring to the literal death or the symbolic elements that reminds us of the death of Christ, either way, the blood equates to the death of Jesus, the atoning death of Christ. Now, the matter of water is not as straightforward. There's even more opinions and more options of what the water may refer to. So what does it mean that Jesus came by water? Some people will say that John is referencing water as the birth of Christ. Uh, So in that sense, water would be speaking of the amniotic fluid that is present at birth. So that's one option, that the water is referencing the birth of Christ. If If the blood is referencing the death of Christ, then water is representing the the birth of Christ. And so we kind of have this holistic view of the the life and death of Jesus. That's one option. Another option is that it's referencing the baptism of Christ. Um, The water that John the Baptist baptized Jesus in. And it was this moment that Christ was identifying with God's people. And he was anointed by the Holy Spirit for his ministry. And so it was a very important aspect of Christ's ministry was his baptism. And so some will say that the water is referencing the baptism of Christ. Still others say that water is symbolic for the Holy Spirit. Since elsewhere in John's gospel, the Holy Spirit is called living water. And so some will say the birth, some will say baptism, some will say that it's referencing the Holy Spirit. And still others, there are other uh, uh, less popular theories out there as well. Unfortunately, uh, all of them are valid options and scholarship varies pretty significantly on this issue. But that doesn't mean that all is lost. It doesn't mean that we can't know how to move forward. See, whether water refers to the birth of Christ, or it refers to the baptism of Christ, or it refers to the Holy Spirit's anointing of Jesus in his life and ministry, I want to point out again that either way, it would be referring to an aspect of Christ's spirit-empowered life whether it refers to his birth, baptism, or the presence of the Holy Spirit, it's referring to an aspect of Christ's spirit-empowered life. Think about it. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's involvement in the birth of Christ is, is present. The Spirit testifies in the birth of Christ who Christ is and what he came to accomplish. The Holy Spirit was the one that descended upon Jesus in his baptism. And the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son, whom I love, in whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit empowered him for his ministry. And so whether water refers to birth, baptism, or the spirit's presence in his life, John says that the spirit is the one who testifies. And we clearly see him testifying in all of these aspects of his life. And so it seems clear 
that John is using water in relationship to the blood and that these two should be taken together, that Jesus came by water and blood. It's taken together to signify the totality of Christ's life and his death. Whether we know specifically what water is referring to or what it could be referring to or what blood could be referring to, Either option makes clear that what John is arguing for is taking together all of what Jesus did from beginning to end, his spirit-empowered life and his atoning death. And so the, the authentic gospel is a water and blood gospel, which is another way of saying that the authentic gospel is a matter of life and death. The authentic gospel is a matter of life and death. John breaks this down a little bit more when he stresses that Jesus did not come by water only. He did not come in his life and ministry only. He did not come in in, in that way only, but he also came by blood. Not water only, but water and the blood. Jesus did not just come to live and set a good example and then go the way of all humanity and die. No, Jesus came to die. Jesus says, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. There is purpose in his death. He did not just come to live, but to die. And so apparently the false teachers were denying the significance, the importance of the death of Jesus. Many people today are tempted to do the same. Many people in the world and and, and even in the church, various Christian circles are tempted to diminish the importance, the significance of the death of Christ. In fact, uh, people throughout history have always wrestled with the temptation to diminish one aspect of Christ's ministry or the other, either to to uh, diminish his the importance of his life or to diminish the importance of his death. But the authentic gospel, the true gospel, that is the power of God unto salvation is a matter of the life and the death of Jesus. Because all that Jesus is, all that he said, all that he did from beginning to end has incredible impact on what we believe and how we are to live. And so I want to show you just briefly the problems that occur when we emphasize one aspect over another, when we emphasize his life or his death over and above the other one and don't keep them in tension, don't keep them in balance. So first, a gospel that highlights the life of Jesus, but diminishes his death, acknowledges Jesus as our example, but not as our savior. If we exalt his life and diminish his death, then we have Jesus as an example, but not our savior. It's having a water only gospel. And so all that matters to us in in this, if this is how we view Christ, it's all about what he did. It's all about Christ as an example. Then we have an example to follow, but we don't have the savior that we need. And this plays out differently in different communities. And it's perhaps most likely the situation that John is arguing against uh, in this letter. See, if, if Jesus was merely human, 
If he was uh, just another person who was endowed with the divine presence in the Holy Spirit, uh, then all of those who believed in him, who trusted him, in him, who were a part of the, the community, who were then given that same Holy Spirit, had then the, the best part of Jesus and no longer actually needed Jesus. See how that works? If, 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 if all that is significant about Jesus is that he had the Holy Spirit, and then everyone who believes in Jesus also has the Holy Spirit, then you actually don't need Jesus any longer because you already have the best part of him. And so you don't need his words. You don't need his teaching. You don't need his death because all that's significant is the spirit that empowered his life. And now you have that. So now go your way, be led by the spirit. And you don't need theology. You don't need the person and work of Jesus because you have the spirit. This is what many scholars believe the antichrists were teaching. They had the Holy Spirit, so they didn't need John's gospel. They didn't need what he said about Jesus. They didn't need the blood of Christ. They could move forward in loving obedience of, 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 of God and, and fulfill uh, a, a good life and be accepted by God because they had the Holy Spirit. Since the same Spirit was on, that was on Jesus was on them, they no longer needed Jesus. But without the good news of the atoning death of Christ, all that a life like that can become is a social justice warrior. If all you have is Jesus as an example, but you don't have the atoning death, the blood of Christ that washes away our sins and makes peace with God, the best we can accomplish is social justice warriors. We can accomplish good things for humanity by eliminating physical suffering in this life, but we do absolutely nothing to prevent eternal suffering in the next life. If all we have is Christ as an example, that's what we're left with. And to put it another way, it would be that a water-only gospel, a life of Christ-only gospel, a Jesus as example only gospel empowers a life of love, but not truth. The truth about who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross no longer matters because all that matters, according to a water-only gospel, is that I do my best to live like Jesus. If this is the gospel that you preach, if this is the gospel that you believe, it's a false gospel. It's a false gospel. It's at best, it's a half gospel. It is not the authentic gospel that scripture teaches. If all that you believe is that Jesus was a good guy that you can emulate, and as long as you do your best, it'll make God happy, and, and, you know, he's going he's gonna to let you into his kingdom because, you know, you, you did your best. There's no power in that. There's no power in that way of life. We're mistaken. God's already told us how to live. Remember the law? The law was God telling the world how to live. 
This is what you must be like. This is what you must do and what you mustn't do. We don't need an example. The law was the example. We failed the example. God's people have always struggled to keep the law. We don't need another example. Jesus had to come for something else. Something else had to be done. A water-only gospel, an example-only gospel is a false gospel. But the inverse is also problematic. A gospel that highlights the death of Jesus but diminishes his life may accept Jesus as a savior but rejects the need for him as an example. And so this would result in a life that's big on truth but weak in love. Big on theological truths, bullet points that you must affirm. You can articulate the doctrine of the Trinity with eloquence. But if you have not love, sound doctrine even is just noise. It's just noise if we don't have love. Without Jesus' blood, without the death of Christ, I'm sorry, without the life of Christ, if we only have the blood of Christ, if we only have truth, then there is no reason to repent. There's no reason to pursue righteousness because my sins are forgiven. I believe what Jesus did for me. All Jesus is is a sacrifice for my sins. And so I can live however I please because forgiveness It doesn't matter what I do with my life. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. It doesn't matter what I do with someone else's life or someone else's body. My sins are forgiven. And so I can do whatever I want because Jesus is my savior, but not my example. See, we can can get it wrong either way if we don't keep these things in tension, if we don't keep these things in rather in balance. And see, the world outside of the church loves a water-only gospel. Oh, we just love watery Jesus. We love a water-only gospel. Just the kind, gentle Jesus surrounded by children, a lamb in his arms. Never do anything to make anyone uncomfortable. We don't like Jesus with a whip who drives out the money changers and pronounces woes on the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. We don't like the Jesus that challenges my my way of life, my sin. We don't like the Jesus that says, oh yeah, you want to follow me? Awesome, pick up your cross and follow me. Lay down your life. The world outside the church loves watery Jesus. But many people inside the church err on the side of blood-only Jesus err on the side of of the blood-only gospel. See, I believe what is true, and that is good enough. Don't judge me for how I live. Don't tell me what to do. Don't demand anything morally of me or ethically of me. I'm going to come to church. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I'm going to remember the truths of Scripture. Yep, I identify with that bullet point. Yes, oh, the pastor's three points. Yep, 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 check, check, check. I'm good for another week. And then I go off and I live however I want 
Don't tell me to do otherwise. I, I love, I'll let Jesus die for my sins, but I mind him to stay out of my life, my, my romantic relationships, my search history, my politics. Uh, don't tell me what to do, Jesus. Don't tell me how to live my life. I believe in your blood. That's enough. Now, Jesus, leave me alone. Now, we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say that. but that's true of us sometimes. Inside the church, we err on the side of, I'm just going to exalt the blood of Christ over his life. He's my savior, but he's not my example. I'm going to live my life however I please. And his life and his teaching and his example is not going to impact me one iota because it doesn't need to, because he died for my sins and I can live however I want. Now, whether that's you or not, it's probably someone you know whether in this room with us or someplace else that identifies as a Christian, but you look at their life and you go, I don't see any Jesus in you. I don't see you trying to, to live by the example that he set. This kind of blood-only gospel is rampant in the church. And quite honestly, it produces hypocrites. It produces hypocrites. And it's the reason why people outside of the church look at the church and go, hypocrites. They, there, are, there are people who live more like Jesus who don't believe in his atoning death than sometimes those who do believe in his atoning death. So why do I need to believe all of these things that you tell me I have to believe when I look at you and your life is no better than, you know, the person down the street who just thinks Jesus was an ancient Tony Robbins? Just, just giving people some self-improvement, Right? But the authentic gospel is not a watered-down Jesus, nor is it merely a bloody Jesus on the cross. The authentic gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ in his entirety, in all that he is, in all that he did. It is a water and blood gospel. It is the good news of his righteous life and his atoning death. By it, we are saved from our sins and empowered to live a life of truth and love. It is a water and blood gospel, and it is a matter of life and death. This water-only gospel is insufficient, or the blood-only gospel is insufficient. See, the Spirit has testified, John says, to the necessity of the water and the blood. It is the Spirit that testifies because the Spirit is the truth. But remember, John is saying this not simply to outline a theological position. He didn't sit down and go, all right, I need some content for my blog. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm, what should I write about today? I'm gonna write about the water and the blood. That's not what he's doing. He is arguing against heresy. He is protecting the, the authenticity of the faith of the church that he loves. Someone has come in with false teaching, is leading people astray, and so his letter has an intention. He is arguing for something specifically. He's urging the church specifically in this, this balance of the water and the blood, he's urging them specifically not to neglect the blood of Christ. Do not neglect the blood of Christ. 
Are you tempted to neglect the blood? Does it make you uncomfortable? Are you tempted to kind of put it out of your mind and and receive only this, this example of Jesus, this watered down Jesus? See, even in the church, many may talk about Jesus' death, but oftentimes the way Jesus' death is used is as an illustration of what it looks like to lay your life down for someone else. Many people in the world will talk about that. They'll talk about Jesus' teachings. Jesus was a good moral teacher. And then you bring it up. Well, then why did he have to die? To show us the way of sacrifice. Really? Just to show us the way of sacrifice? Couldn't he have done it a different way? Or, or just said that? You know, why did, he, why did he have to die? The scriptures are clear. He had to die. There was a purpose in his death. He had to die. See, if all his death is, is an example, there's no power in it, right? There's, there can be some inspiration. They can be motivational, but there's no power in it to actually accomplish anything. And if it doesn't accomplish anything, then there's really no reason humanity needs to know about it. If all of it is, if all it is, is an example, there are plenty of awesome examples out there. There's examples of people who are still alive today that we can go and talk to and learn from. If all Jesus' death was, was an example, there's really no reason for people to know about it. There's lots of great examples of people throughout history who encourage people to live a good life. Is Jesus no different to us? Is he no different to us? If he's no different than any other teacher, philosopher, uh, even founder of, 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 a, of a world religion, if he's no different than, you know, the Buddha or Muhammad or, I don't know why I keep throwing him under the bus, Tony Robbins, if he's no different than any of these motivational speakers or these good teachers, then why are you here? You may be here even wrestling with this. Man, there's something about Jesus that I like. There's something about Jesus that is appealing to me. There's something about Jesus that I want to know. I, I, I know other examples, but there's something about Jesus that keeps drawing me to him. I'll tell you what that is. It's the spirit testifying to the truth of these things in your life, drawing you near so that you can understand, receive, and be cleansed by the blood of Christ. You are here because you need the blood of Jesus. Our text is a loud cry resonating with our hearts that something about just living a good life or following a good example isn't enough. The blood of Jesus matters, not just his life, not just his example, but the blood of Jesus matters. In fact, the blood of Jesus is an absolute necessity for salvation. The blood of Jesus is an absolute necessity for our salvation. I want to just point out three reasons why today we need to take the blood of Jesus more seriously. First, we need to take the blood of Jesus more seriously because sin is real. Because sin is real. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So we need to take the blood of Jesus seriously because the death of Jesus had a purpose and its purpose was to atone for sin. 
Atonement is a, is, a, is a fancy theological word that just means to cover, right? Like covering the bill at a restaurant. See, your sin uh, requires payment. And apart from someone else paying the penalty for your sin, you will have to pay it on your own. But Jesus has you covered. Jesus foots the bill. And because of the blood of Christ, peace is accomplished now between you and God. Apart from Jesus, your sin makes you an enemy of God. It makes you a rebel against God, guilty of treason against the high king of all creation, of all the universe. And there is a war between you and God, whether you recognize it or not because of your sin. But because Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin, God no longer looks at you as an enemy. He looks at you as a friend. He looks at you as a child of God. If you have received the blood of Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, speaking of Jesus, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, that includes you, to reconcile to himself all things, including you, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Isn't that good news? That's good news that, that the sin that makes you an enemy of God has been washed clean. It's been cleansed. You've been set free and you have peace with God because of what Christ has done for you. The life that Jesus lived was a beautiful life. He is our example in many things and what, what a spirit-empowered life looks like. But he is not merely an example of righteousness. He's not even the best example. I mean, he is the best example of righteousness, but that's not what he is, just only an example. Jesus is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. Everything that he accomplished for the glory of God, the Spirit testifies to and applies it to your life as though everything you've ever done was Christ. Jesus isn't just an example of righteousness. He is our righteousness. And so the false teachers, since they believed that they had the same spirit that empowered Christ's righteousness, they believed that since they had the power in and of themselves, they didn't need anything to do with Jesus other than him being an example. And so they, they diminished the importance of the cross. And as a result, they diminished the need for the atonement of our sins. They had a water-only gospel. And when we have a water-only gospel. We can do great things for humanity and for one another. But in the end, we and those we lead are still dead in our sins. We need to take the blood of Christ seriously because sin is real, but also because God is love. Sin is real and God is love. John says in 1 John 4, 8 and verse 10, God is love. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John defines love purely by what God has done 
because of our sin. God is love because he sent his son to be the propitiation, to be the satisfaction, to appease the wrath of God for the sin that we commit. God's love for us is defined by what he has done in Christ. If you ask people in your life, how do you feel about the phrase, God is love? Everyone loves the phrase, God is love, because most of the time what they mean is that love is God. And so as long as I can identify love, then I'm in the presence of God. And so people love this idea of God is love, just watery Jesus, just comfortable, safe, don't accuse me of anything, Jesus. People love this phrase, God is love. But if you ask them why they believe that God is love, or what does it mean practically to them that God is love? Unless they have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, they will not say because of the sin that God forgave in the blood of his son. And yet that is exactly how the Bible defines the love of God. God is love because he sent his son to die for our sins. Now, it doesn't mean God doesn't have affection or that God doesn't have compassion for his people. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Zephaniah 3.17. I quote it often. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. All right, God makes love songs about his people. He just bursts forth with affection and love and desire and, 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 and relationship with them. God's love for you and affection for you is real, but it is demonstrated not in kind words or in songs alone or affirmation and praise of everything that you do. It is demonstrated for you by sending his son to die for your sins. That is the love of God. That's the love of God. And so the blood of Jesus is an absolute necessity because no other deity, no other religion, no other philosophy or ideology can adequately deal with the problem of sin. The best they can do is tell you to ignore it as an illusion or just make sure to pursue more good deeds than bad deeds. But imagine this for a moment. Imagine that you sat down for dinner and a Michelin star chef prepares for you a, uh, an exquisite gourmet meal of all of your favorite foods. And then right in front of you takes like, I don't know, like arsenic or something, some poison and sprinkles it on top of the food. It doesn't matter how good the rest of the ingredients are. It will kill you. You're not going to eat it. Something must be done about the poison in order to make the meal edible. In the same way, it doesn't matter how good or how righteous your life is. One sin, one transgression of the law, and God's word says we have become violators of the entire thing. Something must be done about human sin. It's not just adding righteousness. You need to get rid of the poison. You need to get rid of the toxin. And the best that other philosophies and religions are going to tell you is to ignore the bad and focus on the good. And in the end, you're still dead in your sins. We're dead, but God is love. And so he made a way to set you free from sin. That is Jesus Christ. And this means that faith in Jesus is absolutely necessary. Not just because sin is real 
or because God is love, but because Jesus is the only way of salvation. Jesus is the only way. This this passage in John is like a courtroom, right? There's testimony, there's witnesses, and we have a verdict. And the verdict is this, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. See this, even in the way John is writing this, you can see on the other side, the temptation to diminish the importance of the Son of God and exalt the Spirit. John emphasizes over and over and over again, this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is why in Acts 4.12, it says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way, church. There's no other way to deal with sin other than to bear the penalty ourselves, which is separation from God and his goodness. Jesus is the only way, not because he's the only example or, or, or even the best example, but because he died for our sin and through faith in him, your sin is taken away and eternal life is yours. Jesus is the one who came by water and blood. He came to live for our righteousness and die for our sins. And the Holy Spirit applies the salvation that Jesus accomplished to those who believe. And so today, If you have already trusted or you put your trust in Jesus today, for the first time you put your trust in Jesus and what he did for you, then you have been united to the Son of God and therefore you have life in his name. But apart from that faith, John's clear. You can't mince words with John. He is clear. Apart from that faith, apart from the Son of God, you do not have life. And this is where it's easy to to be tempted to get angry or or to close off your your ears or your heart to God because you know because he's because of the the exclusivity of of Jesus that Jesus can't be the only way there's got to be other ways to God all roads lead to God. I know all of these people who live a good life you mean to tell me that apart from Jesus that they don't have salvation it would be tempted to just be angry or or fearful it'd be tempted to to get angry because of the high demand that Jesus has for our lives, the high demand for a moral ethic, that there are things in our life that that we just can't do anymore with a clear conscience. There's things in our life that aren't fitting for a person who has been saved by the blood of Jesus. It would be easy to get fearful because we, we often don't know what God will require of us. But all of those ideas, that fear, that anger, all of that, is, is focusing on, again, what you might have to do or what you might not be able to do. And I would just ask you for a moment, for once, take your eyes off of what you think this will require of you and think for a moment, receive for a moment what it is that God is offering you. 
we can get angry and fearful because we don't know what the future holds and we don't know what God will expect of us and require of us. And we don't know if we're going to be able to let go of those secret sins in our lives that, that we just don't want to let go of. Our, our, our pet sins that, 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 that give us comfort in those moments of, of weakness when the rest of our world is spiraling. We go to those things to take the edge off of life and we can't possibly imagine what life will be like without those things. Well, I I just ask you to consider what is life like apart from Jesus and consider what God might be wanting to give you, not, not take from you like a, like a, 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 a mean person just trying to take things from you. God wants to give you something. He wants to give you his son. He wants to give you life. Remember not what God requires because the power to give God what he requires will come when we receive what God has generously, lavishly given. The blood of his son. Receive what he has given. Give thanks to God for his love and receive eternal life that is only available by the blood of Jesus. And for those of you who have put your trust in Jesus, who know Christ, who have seen the beauty of him as an example and have received his atoning death, then I beg you, when people ask you the gospel, when people ask you about your faith, when people ask you about Christ, give them a gospel that is full of water and blood, that is full of the life and death of Jesus. Because apart from that, It's a false gospel and there is no power to save. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you didn't just live for us, but you died for us. You didn't just die for us, but you are our righteousness in your life, in the way that you lived. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that uh, you come upon us, not to just empower us to live like Jesus, but to apply his righteousness to us, to apply his blood to us so that we have both righteousness and forgiveness of sins. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you have done, what you have accomplished on our behalf. And we ask that you would stir our hearts up now as we worship you in this place. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.